0: What's a virgin? This question often makes Christmas very awkward for families with kids. You're all there, warm and cozy, and you're matching PJs. There's icing from cinnamon rolls over everyone's face. You have a cup of warm coffee in your hand, and you say, now we're going to put Christ in Christmas. We're going to remind you kids what this is all about. And you begin to read from the Gospel of Luke. And then all of a sudden, everyone is cringing as you're talking about the birds and the beasts. What does it mean he did not know her? Now, some of you are maybe a little anxious that I've started that conversation a month early for you. That gives you plenty of time to make Christmas less awkward. And if you have any complaints or need any counsel with that, you can email eric at ashland.church and he'll help walk you through that as a family. But what's a virgin? You cannot understand the incarnation, the enfleshing of Christ, You can't understand what God is doing unless you address that subject. As a matter of fact, you can't understand the gospel by merely talking about a stork or making some generic way of communicating this up. You have to deal head on with what is going on here To really understand what God is doing. And as uncomfortable as it is, Luke makes it a central part of his story. The virgin birth that we're going to look at today, beginning in verse 26. Notice, first of all, we see grace to the insignificant. Notice verse 26. In the sixth month. Now, Luke is focused on pregnancy. And here, as he talks about the sixth month, he's talking about Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist, this prophet of God that is going to point to Jesus as God's king. And Luke also emphasizes exact points in history. He wants us to know who was ruling. He wants us to know what was going on. Even as Galatians says of the coming of Christ, that it happened during the fullness of time. Meaning it was, it, it was at the exact moment God wanted it to happen. History was pregnant for this exact moment of the coming of Christ. And in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy... The angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now notice this angel Gabriel sent directly from God to this lowly place, Galilee named Nazareth. Now we have to remember angels were angelic, which means they were cosmic galactic messengers from God. They spent their time, and they spend their time in the presence of God at all times. They are holy. They are set apart to Him. And this seems to be a chief angel sent directly from God to this place called Galilee. Now, Galilee was a place of less than probably 100 people north of Jerusalem. It was on the outskirts of the city. Don't even think Berea. Think Waco. This is where this angel of the Lord is sent from the throne room of heaven, from the presence of God, Nazareth, to this place named Nazareth. And we even know in the Gospels, there's the statement made, can anything good come from Nazareth? What's over there in Nazareth? Those simple, common, rule folks. What can happen that is good, that is significant in Nazareth? But this is where God sends Gabriel. And notice where to? To a virgin. Now this is an important detail. This virgin, meaning She is pure of any intimacy that leads to conception and the birth of a child. There, I said it for you, put it in very scientific terms for you to explain. But notice this virgin is betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Now, betrothal is not the same as an engagement. You'll hear a lot of people try to summarize that or state that simply by saying this is like engagement. It is not at all like what we think of someone who is engaged to be married. It was, an, it was part of the covenant of marriage. And it involved a covenant. And there was usually a ceremony where the bride's father paid a dowry uh, to, uh, for a man's daughter, maybe some goats or something, to have his daughter's hand in marriage. And there was a ceremony and there was a contract that was signed. And then during this time, the couple separated to prepare for marriage. But this was a part of the marriage covenant. And to break this covenant was equivalent with divorce and there would have been public scorn and usually the woman would have become an outcast. Now we see this symbolism in the gospel of betrothal. Jesus has paid the price for his bride and he has separated from her for a time and this marriage will be consummated. But this is the biblical idea of betrothal and it is a covenant commitment which is going to make things awkward for a man named Joseph. Now, Joseph, as we know, was really insignificant. We even write books trying to make him more significant. But he was a carpenter. And notice what makes him significant here is he was of the house of David, the line of King David, the tribe of Judah, to whom God had promised that his king would come from. He had promised the kingdom to the line of David. But notice the virgin's name, Mary. Again, Mary to us, the Virgin Mary is famous. But at this moment in time, she would have been unknown. Just another Mary. And there were plenty of Marys during this time. But she would have been a peasant girl between the ages of 13 and 15. And as we know, she was also in the line of David to whom God had promised his kingdom. And so here we see this insignificant place and we see a really insignificant couple doing what people do. They are getting married. And then notice everything changes, verse 28. And he, Gabriel, came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. We don't really know what she was doing, working, what she did every day for her family. And then all of the sudden, there would have been this cosmic sound in her presence that would have shaken the ground. Greetings, oh favored one, the Lord is with you. This is a formal announcement. The the word favored means graced or blessed by God. And notice how she is blessed by God. God is with her. God has chosen you for something. And he is with you for that. Here there is this cosmic announcement. This earth shattering moment in her life that breaks in. And notice her response. And, And... In verse 29, the word but is contrasted. This is a great greeting, an amazing moment in her life, but she was greatly troubled. Except that she was scared to death at the saying. And she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Mary didn't all of a sudden say, Oh, an angel. makes perfect sense. I've been waiting on this. I hear about this so often. All of my friends have had angels speak to them. This makes perfect sense. No, this was out of the ordinary. This was scary. This caused her to tremble. She is trying to figure out. She is disoriented. This is something that doesn't happen on the planet. And she is trying to figure it out. What is going on? And so the angel reiterates, do not be afraid. Easy for you to say. Do not be scared. And the word here is is stop trembling. Stop being terrified. And we realize here that, that angels aren't soothing. Their presence is scary. You have to use the facilities It it causes you to tremble. Everything within you is shaking. And the angel who scares her also has to give her a word of assurance. Calm down, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, the terminology here isn't that she's done something for God to bless her. A better translation would be God has chosen you for something. God has set his purposes on you. But first of all, we see grace to the insignificant. Think about this as we think about the Christmas story. The most significant event in human history comes through very insignificant people. Now, Mary and Joseph are famous to us. But at this moment, they weren't. They were common folk in a common place. And yet God uses them to bring about this this amazing plan, this earth-shattering event. He uses them. And we learn from this that significance is found when we understand the grace of being folded in to God's plans and purposes for human history. Some of you are going to wake up this week and you're going to go to that same job. And you're going to think, how significant is this? And you're going to spend the day doing the same thing that you do every day, trying and and working to find some sort of significance in it beyond just paying the bills. And, And some of us are going to get to the end of our life and we're going to look back and we're going to think, what sort of impact did I make? How significant was this? pouring coffee, doing paperwork, working at Walmart, driving a car, putting our kids to bed. How significant really is this life? And some of us, that drives us crazy. But all of that angst is resolved the moment you understand that significance is found in being folded into God's plans and purposes for human history, no matter how insignificant you are. And no matter how insignificant what you do is, Your family, your work, the common things that you do, the ordinary things that you do throughout the day are made extraordinary when you begin to see them in God's plans and purposes. That He has put you here for this moment in time just like Mary and Joseph to accomplish His purposes where you are. That's where significance is found. But notice, we see next the grace of the Messiah. Verse 31. And behold... The Lord is with you for a purpose. And I'm going to tell you that purpose. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Listen, you're going to become pregnant and you're going to carry and give birth to a child. And notice this child is a son. He will be like you. His gender will be male. What a gender reveal party with an angel. This is, uh, she already knows the gender, and this is why. You'll call him Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus. Now, this isn't just Jesus' first name. This is a title that God gives him, and it means one who saves. He is the, de- he is the deliverer. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, his role is to save and rescue and deliver God's people from their sin. Notice verse 32 he will be a savior, but he will be great. This word means mega or larger than life. Throughout history, his name will be the greatest. And He will be called, or He will be given the role, the Son of the Most High. Now remember, Son means to be like the Father, but it is also a biblical term that means King. And notice, He will be given the highest throne. He will be the Son, the King of the highest authority, the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, the highest King. And the verse continues, And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. He will be in the line of David also. And the Lord, the sovereign master, ruler, creator of the world, the one who created all things, the highest authority, the highest throne, will give to this one, Mary, your son, who will be a savior, the throne of David. The king of heaven will come through your womb to the biblical dynasty of David to occupy this promised throne on earth. And notice the result, verse 33. Because this is heaven's king, he will reign over the house of Jacob. This takes us back to Genesis 12, where God made promises to Abraham that through Abraham there will be a chosen people and all the nations will be blessed through the house of Jacob, over the house of Jacob, this king will reign, notice the word, forever. And then there's the explanation, in his kingdom there will be no end. He will be Savior, He will be the highest King, and His reign will know no end. It will be eternal. It will be forever. And we know God promised to David that He would have an everlasting dominion. And to David's son, there would be a throne given that there would be no end. And then we read of Solomon and we see Israel prospered under Solomon. We see that there was security under Solomon's rule. There was blessing, but then Solomon died. This wasn't the eternal son of David. He's still to come. And here in the womb of this peasant girl, this insignificant peasant girl, is the eternal king of God that will come into the world. Here in her womb is the Messiah. All of that terminology helps us to see this is Israel's Messiah coming through the womb of Mary. Messiah means promised or anointed one. The one who was promised to save God's people ultimately from their sins. This is why when we refer to Jesus, we say Jesus Christ. A better way to say it is Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. The one who will eternally save. And we understand and we read our Bibles that history is full of great temporary leaders. We read our Bibles, we see men like Moses. And, and Moses was a deliverer. He rescued God's people from Egypt. He, he took them through the Exodus and into the wilderness. But Moses, this great deliverer, lost his mind with the people became angry, and didn't even enter the promised land. And we even see in the book of Judges, more deliverers. The people of God, they sin against God, and then God allows their enemies, the Philistines, to come in and rule over him. And then God raises up deliverers, leaders who rescue God's people. But we see in those leaders, they're flawed. Samson, they're still sinful, even though they are Great leaders and deliverers, even in King David, who we've already referred to several times here, the one who killed Goliath, the one who delivered God's people into security and prosperity, and yet David sinned and failed at the end of his life, and David is dead. History is full of great leaders. History is full, even in the Bible, of great deliverers. But there is always this promise of this one who will come and he will establish deliverance and he will establish a rule and it will not stop. It will go on and on and on and on and will not end. We even know in our own country, there are great leaders that are just legacies now from Washington to Lincoln to Roosevelt to Reagan. They're just great memories and legacies. We even hear that that legacies last forever. But here's the reality. Men do not last forever, save one. Jesus isn't a mere legacy. He is a king who has come and established an eternal rule. And here's the point. We are the most miserable when we put eternal hope in temporary legacies. We're the most miserable when we do that. The best men, the best leaders, the best women who have done great things and been great leaders, they're they're bound by sin, they're, they're bound by death, and they're bound by time. They're not eternal. And the most good they do only lasts for a time, and we have to look back on it and even remember fondly at times. And we often forget this about ourselves, don't we? We begin to live lives where we are the Messiah. We are the eternal King. And the world revolves around us. And we even begin to think that my time on earth is really all that matters. It's all that I see. It, what is right in front of me, the temporary. And we give ourselves over that into ways where we forget That we are a blip on the screen. We are small and we are insignificant. And yet Jesus is eternal. He's an eternal savior and his kingdom is forever. And we will not know happiness until we are connected to his kingdom. Often when I go back home to Lewisburg, Tennessee, to funerals, one of the things that I actually like to do is walk through cemetery where so many of my family members and friends uh, are, are buried. We actually have a family cemetery where that, and, and I'll just, I'll walk through and I'll, I'll remember the names of aunts and uncles and people, even with my last name. And, and one of the things that's beginning to kind of get to me is I will walk past the grave of a relative, and I remember when I first met them, They were the age I am now. And here's their grave, And here they are, buried. And it's a good reminder to remind myself, I am temporary. And as much as you want to kick against that and fight against that, it is reality and it is true and it's something that should sink in every day. And it's something that even in Acts, Peter tells us, that you can walk through the Jerusalem gardens you can walk and you can see names like David and he is dead and gone. And all of, all of God's other kings that he gave to Israel, they're dead. And yet Jesus is the only one who was crucified for our sins, defeated sin, and is a former corpse ruling and reigning. The son of the most high, which is spoken here, is back on the throne that he occupied in eternity past and he will rule on forever. And you're going to be free from that anxiety of your temporariness, the worry and the fear when you are latched to his eternal throne. And you realize it is his kingdom, his glory that lasts forever. There's freedom in that. But notice the text continues, verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? That is a great question. That makes perfect sense. How is this going to happen? I'm a virgin. And so again, Luke wants to emphasize her purity. The natural necessities of happening having a child, have not happened with Mary. Verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. Now, we have to dig into this a little bit and explain what's going on here. The only way this is possible is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the word holy means to be set apart. It means to be set apart to God's rule. And the Spirit is the third person in the Trinity that we talk of. He is a person distinct from the Father and Son, but equal in His divinity. And the Spirit is the one who sets us apart to the rule and reign of God. He is the power and presence of God's rule. And we see in the Old Testament, He anoints men. He anoints deliverers for a purpose. He anoints them with the presence and power of God's rule. He sets them apart for God's work. And here, the angel says, this is what's going to happen to you, Mary. The, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that sets us apart to, to God's rule is going to come upon you. And the word here is the same in Acts 1.8, where the Spirit of God comes upon us and we witness the gospel The same power of the Holy Spirit is going to set you apart for something, Mary. And the power of the Most High, again, emphasizing the power of the kingdom, the holy rule of God, notice, will overshadow you. And and here the word overshadow takes us all the way back to creation, where the Spirit of God hovered over the waters of the deep before God created all things. And it points to the fact the Spirit of God will hover over your womb because there is a new creation dawning and it begins with a pure and holy man that will occupy your womb. Now, it's significant that all Old Testament kings were anointed temporarily to rule and govern. What we have to understand about Jesus is he's already heaven's king. He doesn't need a specific anointing for that. What is going on here in the virgin's womb is that the womb is being set apart for the king to occupy it. This is called a holy conception. This is not, we have to understand this, this is not the creation of a new person the person who will occupy the womb has existed eternally. It is the womb that is being set apart by the Holy Spirit. The work that is being done there is by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is a mystery. It's hard to understand at some point, but what we have to understand is that this is the king of the most high and he's already king. He is not being made king in the womb. The womb is set apart for him to occupy. So that as the text, says, he will be called holy. He will be pure. He will be set apart to God's rule 100%. Now at this point, the story gets less hallmark and really weird sci-fi. Like like you're just flipping through the channels on a Saturday and you've come across some weird sci-fi movie and you just can't turn it off. And it's weird and you're going, why am I watching this? That's the way the story feels like at this moment. Let's just be honest with it. The virgin birth, this holy conception has only happened once in human history. But what goes on here is out of necessity. In the womb of Mary will be one who is 100% man. If there was an ultrasound machine, you would look in and you would see a baby, just like all other babies who are sucking their thumb, muscles and tendons that are growing and developing there. But one thing you could not see that is unlike all other men is that this one will be holy. He will be set apart to the rule of God even before conception. By the way, the Spirit of God doesn't make Jesus holy in the womb. He is already holy. Again, it is the womb that is being set apart. And because of the overshadowing of the Spirit, every bit of His divine nature was present. And every bit of His divine nature was preserved from sin. The sin nature of Mary, the sin nature of Joseph, was not passed on to Jesus. He was 100% man, but He was 100% God in all of His purity. Now, why is this? The text continues. To do the impossible. We see the grace of the impossible is happening here. And behold your relative Elizabeth in her old age. Has also conceived a son. What's the big deal about this? And this is the sixth month with her. Who was called barren. It was declared she could not have children and she is old. And yet God has worked another miracle in her womb. Why? Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. And so in the womb of your cousin, Elizabeth, there is one who you will call John the Baptist. And he is the prophet of God. And what prophets do is they point to the kings. They say, everybody listen up. The king is here. The king is here. And John the Baptist does that for Jesus. He's walking by the river. And what does John the Baptist do? Behold the Lamb of God. There is God's King. There is God's ruler. And from the moment of conception in the womb of Elizabeth, he is pointing to Jesus. And what is he saying about Jesus? Verse 37, nothing will be impossible with God. Even the conception of John is a declaration that God is doing the impossible. That is is what's going on here. The prophet will point to Jesus. And even in this impossible birth of John, he points to Jesus. God is stopping human history and saying, I am doing the impossible in the wombs of Mary and Elizabeth. Now, what's impossible? what is he doing that's impossible? We often think, is it just bringing about life in the womb in this way? No, what he is doing that's impossible is saving you from your sins because that's impossible for you to do on your own. You are guilty of sin. You were created by God and you said, I'm going to live however I want to. And you shook your fist at God and you disobeyed him, even though he is the creator and he is the ruler. And you said, I'm going to do whatever I want. And you are guilty of sin against God. And for that, you deserve eternal separation. And because God is infinitely holy, your sin is infinite. And it is something you can't get yourself out of. It's impossible for you to do. But the Bible also teaches not only are you guilty of sin, you're dead in sin. Meaning because of your sin, your heart leads you further away from God. That's the twisted nature of your sin. And and the Bible says you must be born again. You must be made alive. You can't save yourself. It is impossible. You can't fix your sin with more grit. Do better. It's infinite sin. You can't save yourself from the curse of your sin, which is death, with more technology. You can't do it. It is impossible to save yourself from sin and death. And that's where saving faith begins, is understanding that God has done something you could not do in a million years with a million more chances. You couldn't do it. It's impossible. In the womb of Mary, He's doing the impossible. It is a false gospel to say, God helps those who help themselves. That is a false gospel, and it is not in the Bible. But it is even more dangerous to have a false faith that believes that false gospel in believing that you, you, God helped you who helped yourself. That's not how you became a Christian. God didn't, we often think God threw out a lifeline. Sure, I was kind of drowning in sin, but I was kind of making my way and God just, God threw out the lifeline. And I was smart enough And intelligent enough to see it and grab it, and God pulled me to the shore. That's not what happened. You had drowned to death, you had suffocated in the waters of your own sin, and you were like a concrete block dead at the bottom of your own sin, and you could do nothing about it. And Jesus jumped in. And Jesus rescued you from the bottom of the oceans of all of your sin that would have damned you to hell forever. And he brought you to the shore and he has revived you with his spirit so that you love him and you trust him and you follow him. That's what's happened. That is the impossible that Jesus came to earth to do. And you've got to understand that to really understand the gospel. If you don't believe that, you don't believe the gospel. If you believe this... Thank you, Jesus. But sooner or later, I would have figured it out. I'm not sure you can be a Christian. Because Jesus came to earth because you couldn't figure it out. And you wouldn't figure it out. And he did all the work for you by taking on flesh and dying in your place. He has done the impossible. He is 100% man. He is 100% God. Why is that important? Because he lived the life you could never live. It would be impossible for you to live that life. And he died the death for you that you could never die. And when you believe in him, you're not credited with some of his righteousness. You have to be credited with all of his righteousness. And you're not credited with some of his Payment, you're credited with all of his payment for your sin. It is all about the work of Jesus from beginning to end. He has done the impossible for you. And that's the gospel. And that's faith in a gospel that says Jesus did the impossible. And so, what does that look like in the life of Mary? Because he's doing the impossible. Notice Mary says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Literally, I am the slave of the Lord. Let it be according to me. Let it be to me according to your word. Notice the faith with Mary, who up until this moment we had no clue who she would be. Insignificant. And yet heaven invades the room. And yet heaven occupies the womb. And the impossible begins to take place. And what does Mary say? If this is the Lord's will, I'm all in. What else would I do if this is God's will? Now, if this story is true, God determines the story of her life. Understand this. Mary had to be the first one to believe in the virgin birth. And think about how awkward that was for her. Think about the moment. The angel departs. She's just given her profession of faith. I'm all in. And then she's got to turn around and tell mom and dad. And then she's got to tell Joseph. And then she's got to deal with the beauty shop gossip. Supernatural, yeah, all right. Notice the sort of faith it takes. I'm the slave of the Lord. Let it be according to His word. His word will determine what my life looks like. And what did her life look like from that moment on? Imagine walking around as a mother of a homeless guy, itinerant preacher claiming to be the Messiah. Imagine what her life is like. And imagine how her son's life ends. We understand she's one of the only ones at the foot of the cross with blood splattering on her face as her son It's crucified and pulverized under the weight of our sin. And what is she standing there believing? That this is my Savior. Let it be to me according to your word all the way to the end. God, you're doing this. She believes the word of God to the end. What God has said, this is the Holy One. His his rule will last forever. She is trusting in the Word of God. And the same question is for you today. If the virgin birth is true, it must determine your life story. Understand this. If this reality, this kooky, crazy story is really true, and you're here today to claim that it's true, it changes everything for you. Mary and Joseph and Jesus aren't just some more mascots in the month of December. If this story is true, it changes the course of history and it changes the course of your life. If it's true, if if you're gonna open your Bible and say, I believe this really happened, then you should take the rest of the Bible and say, I have to believe every other word in it. And I have to stake my life on it. Let it be to me according to your word. Are you willing to say that today? What if God wants you to lead an insignificant life in Richmond? where are you from? Richmond? Richmond, Virginia? No, Richmond, Kentucky. You ever heard of it? No, I've never heard of it. It's south of Lexington. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've been to Lexington. How often do you have that conversation? Insignificant life in an insignificant place. But say, let it be according to me, be to me according to your word, because I find significance in your favor that you have chosen me to be where my feet are and to witness the gospel here. You have folded me into your eternal plans. What if God wants you to face your weakness and frailty and understand that your reign is not eternal and you're not in control? What if there are things this week that are going to force that on you? Will you say, because of what happens here in this story, let it be to me according to your word, because your word tells me of a king who is back from the dead? What if God wants you to grow in thankfulness that you really can't bring nothing to the table when it comes to your salvation? To to be thankful for that. That God hasn't left it up to you. And if He did leave it up to you, all you would do is bring sin to the table even goodness taint it with sin but you can say let it be to me according to your word because your word tells me of a savior who has done the impossible for me if this is true it changes everything the question for you today is do you believe it's true and maybe that's the most awkward question in the room today not what is a virgin but do you believe this is true